What is up, boys and girls? I'm Andy Shaver, and this is the Big Honker Podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. This show is brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. Guys, these are the absolute best silhouettes on the market, bar none. It's not even a freaking competition. If I was another silhouette maker in the in the decoy business today, I would be very, very nervous about what Dive Bomb is doing. We hunt with them seven days a week through some of the worst conditions imaginable, and they're always durable, and they always, always, always hold their colors. The colors are deep and rich, and if you get those that have the flocked heads, they really pop. Also, for the listeners of this show, Dive Bomb is going to give you 10% off at checkout by using the promo code BIGHONKER. Now, it is case sensitive, so it's all lowercase. Big Honker at checkout will save you 10%. So go get that freaking decoy spread that you've always wanted. Go get you 15 or 20 dozen. Tell your buddy to go get him 20 dozen. You both save 10%. Voila, you're killing a shitload of birds over dive bombs, and you're saving a shitload of money in the process. Go do it. Go do it now. I'll wait. Did you do it? Dive Bomb Industries. Anywho... On this episode of the podcast, we have a Texas treasure in Wyman Menzer. Wyman has over 20 photography books out. He, is a tra- he was a trapper by trade in the 70s and 80s. He is a Texas Tech graduate. He was also a Texas Tech professor where he taught photography nonetheless. He is the official, the official state photographer for the state of Texas. He was given that title from a man that goes by. George W. Bush. You've probably heard about him once or twice. So, Wyman is an interesting, interesting cat. We were so lucky to have him in the studio. If you're an outdoorsman, if you're a photographer, if you just love hearing stories about the old days, because Wyman is a history buff and we get into we get into Texas history good and deep, this is an episode that you're going to want to hear. Yeah, sorry for the... Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Boom. Welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. Happy to have everybody. And we have a special guest with us tonight. We have a true Texas legend, a man that has an amazing story and you're fixing to hear it, a man from Benjamin, Texas, which is just a little beep on the dot of the map when you go in between Lubbock and Wichita Falls. A Texas Tech graduate. Go Red Raiders. A speaker at a Texas Tech graduation. His uh, countless 20 books. Am I right? I think 27. 20, like that. 27 books. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Wyman Menzer. Talk- Give it Thank up. You, we're, ex- we're excited to have you. We really are. Well, thank you very much. Good to be here. You are the official photographer of the state of Texas, and you have been since 1997. Is that, that correct? correct. And President George W. Bush. When he was governor, yes, he signed the the uh, the document. Yeah, isn't it amazing to think that you're friends with two presidents <laughs> from what? Benjamin, Texas, growing up? Is that not? 
Well, it's uh, it it really is. I mean, I would have never never dreamed this when I was a child growing up on the ranch. You know, as a, just just uh, back in the fifties and sixties, it'd been hard to imagine. But uh, funny things happen as uh, as the years pass on. Well, you, you are by far the most impressive man within a hundred miles of here when it comes to a, re- <laughs> to, when, a big country, right? Yeah. When, when, it, when it comes to resumes and of uh-huh. what you've done and who you've what you've accomplished as a person and who you've seen, you're a true artist. Who who, who do you look up to? Oh, you know, I'm I'm kind of a a, a person who uh, who looks back and, and appreciates the the older photographers, you know the the I guess you could say the Ansel Adams, the the various guys back in the in the Depression years, Margaret Bork White, you know, she, her work inspired me a lot. I used to to look at her uh, some of her imagery uh, from the Depression years, and um, and the older people. Uh, 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 Porter, uh, oh gosh, can't remember his last. Uh, Porter, don't look at me for anyway, help. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, he did. Uh, he did a shoot on uh, on uh, the uh, the canyons up in Utah before they were dammed up, and uh, and I loved his work. And there was another one, a German photographer, Ernest Haas, who probably had as much influence on my vision um toward uh, toward color what color should be you know and, and the way that images should speak to you uh he did a, a big shoot back in the in the early years in the 50s and 60s and and i really really appreciated ernest haas work what 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 makes a kid from benjamin texas you didn't grow up wealthy did you <laughs> not hardly <laughs> grew up as a, as a my dad was a foreman on a ranch you know i can remember when he was making 150 bucks a month Wow. I remember, I remember him coming home one day and saying, "I've got a, I got a raise. I got a hundred of twenty-five dollars a month." And I said, "Daddy, are we rich?" And he said, "Not hardly." <laughs> but how, a kid like like that, how how do you get in? You weren't given Nikon cameras or whatever no, users. No. How did you get into the photography? Well, uh, I had an interest in it. I asked my mom when I was about twelve years old if uh, she could give me a camera, and she had an old uh, Kodak little box camera, and she she gave it to me a one twenty format and i carried it around my saddlebag for a while and shot images in uh black and white sometimes i'd keep a roll of film in it for a year and it'd be only 12 shots in a row Mm -hmm. and uh but it cost money to get it developed and so i was very careful about the imagery that i shot my subject matter and so um uh, then when i started uh right before i went into tech i kind of lost interest in it and wanted to kind of get into into you know, eight millimeter stuff, but uh, they couldn't afford that for me, and so they gave me even a worse camera, which is a little 127, and I really lost interest in photography then. But once I was at Tech, I, I became involved in uh, in research on on coyotes, and the professor loaned me a 35 millimeter, and that's when it really fired up. That's when the the flames, you know, it it went from a smoke to a fire. And I, I uh, became pretty involved in photography and work from there. So, professor at Tech was your he he loaned me a camera and said I need for you to document your your uh, your uh, your research, your data that you're collecting, your stomach analysis, fecal analysis, and you know the various food items of coyotes. And uh, and told me to go down in the uh, in the wildlife lab and get you some Kodachrome. And so uh, and I went whoa. 
you know, I kind of like this. And so once I had to give the camera back, well, then I went over on 34th Street and purchased a camera at Plains Camera, at, at a camera shop there called Plains Camera. And, uh, and then I just started working from there, just self-taught. So the, the Coyote book is, one, I think, one of your great great books. One of the first ones I really found out about you when I first moved to Knox City, which was 25 years ago, mm-hmm. and I met you. And an old man named Dick Evett hauled me up to your house. Uh-huh. He, he was a meter reader for BK Electric. Okay, yeah, I remember Dick Evett, and, yes. And he, he come by here and he said, I want you to meet this man. He said, I want you to meet Wyman Menzer. And I said, I've heard that name before, and I'd read about you in the Wichita Falls paper. And he took me to the old jail. Right. Because you live, you, right. you, you, now you don't. You've got a beautiful home outside of the jail, but you remodeled the old. Exactly. Yes. And how, how old is that building? Uh, it was constructed in 1887. It, uh, the money was appropriated in April of 87, and it was finished in October of 1887. Now, didn't your uncle or someone spend some time in there? My or grandfather in 1937. Yeah, he yeah. spent time in there, yeah. I read a lot of Wyman stuff on Facebook, so I've heard these <laughs> stories before. But, so anyways, back to the coyote book. So you, you did the coyote. So so when you were doing this research on this deal, was this part of the collections for the coyote books from your original deal? Yeah. Um, um, of course, I started, I was, I developed an interest in predator behavior when I was a kid. I don't know why. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just that something about coyotes fascinated me. And when I was a freshman at Texas Tech, I actually started a book on, on coyotes. I still have it, handwritten, about 10 pages, then I quit. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, all of the knowledge gained from the research and then, of course, from the hunting and, uh, and being around coyotes and the, uh, over the years. That all went into the, into the book itself. Now, when you did the, the pictures for the coyote book, right? T- tell us all how how long did you when you'd go do a photo shoot? Mm-hmm. You camp out for six hours, eight hours, twelve well, hours. Well, I would go. Um, I had three blinds constructed. See, a, a lot of the images uh, you can get through calling coyotes, you know, with a predator call. But I wanted to get interaction between the animals, and so I knew that I had to get a group of animals together. And so I went up on a on the Pitchfork Ranch, and I constructed three blinds made out of mesquite stumps and uh, cedar posts. And uh, and went into a into a lot of detail in building these things. Took a lot of time, and uh, then I would drag dead cattle or dead horses at a distance and 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 uh, and um, peg them to the ground where the cows couldn't drag them off. And then I would wait until the animals came in, started feeding after four or five days. Then I would go every morning, every afternoon, and crawl in these blinds, 45, 50 miles up there every day, uh, one way trip. And I would crawl in the blinds and I would photograph these cows interacting. And then that's how I got a lot of the images. Is that the hardest book you've ever done? Uh, probably um, not the most traveled book, but as far as as being subject to the weather, yeah, it's it pretty tough because it was all done in the winter. And I'd come out of that those blinds and I'd be so cold I couldn't hardly walk. Mm-hmm. And I was a young man then. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, the amazing thing about the coyote is – the average person in the city, or even a country person, they just see a coyote run across the road, and they see right. him at 20 yards standing. They right. don't realize how smart they are. Right. But everyone that I know that is a varmint hunter, a true varmint hunter, mm-hmm. says they're the smartest animal out there. They're, they're, very, they're highly intelligent, especially if you, uh, if you uh, have ever worked with steel traps, you know, and I did for many years. And, uh, and you realize that, that uh, they are a very, very intelligent animal. I didn't realize... Uh 
I had some coyote hunters with me about a month ago, and um, I'm a big turkey hunter, and it, it sounds to me like they were explaining some of the different calls that you can do uh-huh. to get a coyote. They said if you do one that's uh, 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 maybe like a pup in distress. Mm-hmm. No. They said if you hear if you hear a call, a coyote call off in the distance, and they said you can hit this call and you better hold on to your hat mm-hmm. because they're going to come running. Well, it depends. Uh, of course, there are only two types of calls that I use. I don't use any electronic calls. Right. It's all, it's all uh, handmade calls that I've started making when I was a kid. And I use two calls, which is basically a rabbit in stress or a challenging coyote howl. And that's, that's, what, that's the what one that only works basically during the mating season. Okay. That's what it was. In a, it was it was a challenging call is what it's they said. It's in February. And otherwise it just doesn't it just doesn't right. work. It's ineffective. But uh but and I what, don't what is it? it's like three it's like is it three high pitch is it woo 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 is, uh, is that you know what it is? I would have to be blowing on my on my call to even take because I don't think about it until I put <laughs> the call in my it? mouth and I yeah. do it. I know how it's done. Now not only have you taken pictures of coyotes, you've trapped a few in your life. Right. Now when you were in college now, I'm just going off the stories of from from talking to you in the past and stuff. Right. You used to come home and stay at Christmas break and right. live in a and live in your your hunting cabin, right? Well, no, I was, actually I would come in on on the Christmas break and Thanksgiving, and I would I would trap for for extra money to go to school on. That was when the furs uh, started uh, bringing money in '73 and '74, and uh, then once I I graduated from college, then I moved out into a half dugout on a Pitchfork Ranch and lived there for three winters. And that's all I did was trap for a living all now, winter long. Now, let's don't be humble. Let's talk about how many animals you trap. Well, I mean, there's several hundred. But, uh, but um, you know, when you're, when, you're setting a tra- when you're setting a trap line, you don't do a lot of calling. You just, you just trap because you don't want to, to uh, let the animals know that you're in the vicinity pursuing them. So you're trying to be as secret as possible. So I didn't do a lot of calling when I was trapping. I did, did nothing but sit still. That was it. Uh, every once in a while, if, it, if I didn't catch the animal units uh, per day that I was going after. See, I, I set a goal each day that I, I set a goal for four animal units. Four animal units, would I could make a uh, payment on my college loan. I could make my pickup <laughs> payment. And I could buy groceries. Four animal units a day. So if I got three, I would maybe go out and I'd try to call up that fourth one. Right. But if I could if I could maintain four animal units a day with steel traps, that's that's the way I did it. Now you've got an iconic picture, and I, and I would like to get one to put in the lodge mm-hmm. of you all all the animals in front or all the pelts in front of a, the, your right. cabin up there. Yeah. How many how many animals are in that picture? That was a month's kill. Uh, there was well, there's actually there's several of those photographs. There's one's got like eighty, and then there's one that's got sixty, and then I don't know fifteen, sixteen cats. If I was trapping today. You know, back then I was just, I was still a young guy and, and not as experienced. You know, I could double that today. But back then it was enough to make my college payment, right. my pickup <laughs> payment, and life was good. There's I not a lot happy. of guys that age, though, that would go live like you did no, to do that. No, no. It was, it was kind of unusual because uh, I remember they were doing a movie, a Roy Rogers movie, and the movie producers would come down to my cabin, try to catch me and talk to me about trapping you know because i think one of the one of the uh people that was uh, involved in the movie was going to be a trapper and uh, i was told that uh by one of the the ranch foremans that um that they looked at my notes that i kept on my table i was always going on the trap line so i never got to talk to them and they'd say why is an educated man down here doing this 
and it's just you know there was something I wanted to do. You know, it's a passion. Felt, it was a passion. Um, I appreciated my education, but I spent five years at Texas Tech, and whenever I got out, I wanted to do nothing but seven days a week. I wanted to hunt all winter long and get my fill of it, and I did. And I probably wouldn't want to do it again. <laughs> you, you, you told me a long time ago we were talking up here. You were shooting for Ducks Unlimited or something. Mm-hmm. You come out and you did f- some shoots with us. And you told me a long time ago, you said, Jeff, I'm at a place in my life where I really don't care if I ever shoot anything ever again. Yeah. And you said hunters reach a pinnacle. Right. Or, and you said there's different stages. Right. And I've hit that stage where I don't – if I yeah. never kill nothing again, I don't care. Yeah. But I love to see wildlife. Yeah, I love to see them. I and I still like to hunt occasionally um, – and, of course, I, I, I like venison. I always mm-hmm. try to go out and get me a couple of yeah. doe each year. But, uh, but it's not that big a deal anymore to kill anything. It's that when you start out as a young person and you want to kill everything you see, and uh, then you get to that point where it's like, you know, yeah, it's you know, maybe the biggest thing that I see. And then you get to that point where it's like, you know, it's, if I get something great and if I don't, that's fine too. And then now it's like I just rather see it. I just rather watch it. And appreciate life, yeah. and I think that's real important for people to to maintain to to get to that point and realize it and be satisfied with it. And, and I'm assuming, like all, all artists, you had a struggle in your life getting your first work published and you sold. Bet. You bet it was and, tough. And now Wyman Menzer doesn't have that problem. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's you know, it's like any business uh, that, that you're into that's uh, uh, where you work for yourself. It's you know, it's. There's good times and there's tough times. Yes, but uh, but my work is, is is known quite quite well. Yeah, very very well known. So and wh- when was your big when was your big break where, where you thought okay uh, I can I can make actually, a go with this? Actually, made I made that break in 1981, and I had uh, three covers in one month: Sports of Field, uh, American Hunter, and um, Peterson's Hunting. And I knew at that point that there was a possibility that I could really really make a, make a go at it. Right, and um, and up to that point, it was sporadic. But then all of a sudden, it was like it all at one whack. And then, I'll, and then I started having the New York magazines call, you know, want my work. And the names that I'd looked up to over the years and all over America, they were going, "Who's this guy?" <laughs> this all of a sudden hit the hit the front page. Now, and is there so, is uh, not to interrupt you, but is there something that that clicked with your? photographs is there something that you changed or was it just persistence and constant it was persistence but then again uh, i think um gary gretter at sports of field he was the uh, art director and he he told me one day he said i like your eye for light and the angle that you shoot he said it's very unusual mm-hmm. and he said that's that's a key point to your you know to your style of photography and that was my style and that still is my style today so you see, you see stuff different than than we do. Then when you look at something, well, no, actually I don't because I actually view things from a hunter a hunter standpoint. Hmm. Okay. I you know it's like, um, with the exception of of taking photographs from a, of a high blind, I don't I, I know I don't ever do that. But I like to get down in in at an intimate angle and see and look at a, a creature at eye level. It's just more power to it. It's just like you guys sitting in a in a in a ground blind with geese, and they and they come and they land and you're eye level with them, boom, mm-hmm. and that's very exciting. And then you can you can um, communicate 
that excitement and that feel of intimacy with your subject to the audience through the camera if you use the right light and the user and and apply the right angles and that's that's that was always my goal now the roadrunner book you spent a lot of time on your back right there didn't you right there's about 17 years of photography in that book wow that was my first book in in 1990 i believe and um yeah it, it it hit uh it hit the scene pretty hard. In fact, it sold out before it even reached America. You know, we had it published, obviously, over in Hong Kong or somewhere. Uh, but uh, it was sold out because, um, and we had to order a second printing before it even reached American shores. Because uh, it had been published so many times in Europe, uh, Dostier, Hortzou in Germany, uh, Savage Land in France, um, uh, then uh, Italy's... Uh, National Geographic magazine, I forgot the name of it. Now it's been so long <laughs> since that happened. But uh, also Smithsonian. I did a 10-page spread for, uh, for Smithsonian on it. And that really, really created interest. And it was uh, it was an instant success. It's you know, like in its fourth or fifth printing now. It's a, it's a, it's a cool, it's a, it's a great bird. It's a cool bird. It really is. It's a great bird. It's a very, very it's like a coyote. They're very intelligent. So what did you have to do for it? Because it, the only time I see them is when they're darting across the road. So right. for you to sh- rattle off a couple shots. Yeah, um, the the whole key was to find a pair of roadrunners that were nesting that would accept my presence. Mm-hmm. And you might have to go through numerous nest sites before you could find a pair that was like. And you could tell once you once you approach them if they would if they were going to accept your presence because if they didn't jump out of the nest instantly and fly away Mm -hmm. if they let you actually come up and maybe stand there and watch them you go i got it you know i start feeding them grasshoppers (laughs) or pieces of rabbit meat or something like that and then they started they started uh uh you know they realized that i was a food wagon oh right and so when they see me coming they jump up and meet me (laughs) and then i would start imitating their calls and then they would just allow me to hunt with them. I could walk along beside them for hours and hours, days and days, months. I wow. spent with these birds. That's Each amazing. Summer. A road, a road runner. Right. In fact, in fact, my uh, I think up when the book was published, I was the only person to have definitely, definitively established that a pair of road runners will raise three clutches in one season. Mm-hmm. Up until that point. It was known that only, they suspected that they would raise two clutches, but I actually documented three clutches in one nest. Wow. The same parents. How many do they have? Uh, they'll lay five or, or seven or about seven eggs, but usually around five. Four or five uh, young birds will, will actually make it. They're pretty territorial, aren't they? Yes, they are very territorial. Because I see the same roadrunners at the lodge yeah. in the same spot. Yes. Right in the same spot. In other places, we corn like you know deer and hog. You, yep. you corn out of the truck. Right. You see a, you see roadrunners in the same places. Yeah, and I've I've actually watched a roadrunner defend his territory. Another one moved in as I was hunting with them one day and photographing them, back in the nineties, early nineties, and another roadrunner approached and this this one that I was with just took in after him and that other one just I mean really hauled out and left. I mean it was like. <laughs> he was. Uh, he knew he was in the wrong place. He knew place. he was in the wrong yeah. spot. Yeah. Much like a coyote, I mean, from well, what I've know, heard. You know, coyotes are not territorial. They're actually they have they have um, a home ranges. They're not oh, okay. necessarily around the around the den. Yeah, but but coyotes are not territorial like wolves are. They won't actually go out and kill each other. And right, right. There. So once a coyote runs the other one off, 
it's it's done. Where a wolf will uh, the wolves will kill. Uh-huh. You know, if if they find um, a you know a, a, an intruder in their territory, but not a coyote. You know, they may not like it, but they they don't get the big <laughs> fuss. Coyotes. I photographed several fights before around around uh, baits, and uh, and coyote fights are very short duration, and nobody gets hurt. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> well, well, does Roadrunner doesn't have any predator, does he? Hawks. Hawks will get pre- a yes. Roadrunner. Uh, once I, I I observed one time. Uh, it was pretty sad, actually. A nest nesting pair that I had I'd been uh, working with for months. In fact, it was the second year, second season, and the female came in one day with one toe bloody, and it was limping. And that bird didn't last but maybe two weeks. Wow. And it was gone. Yeah. All it takes is just is just uh, uh, for a for a creature to show any sign of weakness, and boom they're gone and that's 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 what amazes me like as humans things are so evolved now and pretty easy right but that's not the way it is for the entire rest of every walking creature on this earth that's right in the if you if you're really into uh wildlife behavior and you're studying it carefully uh it's a tough world out there yeah because i mean you know we're all kind of walking this together but one little sign of weakness and it's over and that's it Right, and that's it's a and that male was, was just absolutely lost without that female. I would actually imitate the call of that female, and he would grab a stick and come running to me, thinking that he had finally found her again. Wow! And, and, it, and it bothered you. It bothered. And me. I've always really bothered me. I've always wondered, like you, when you watch the National Geographic shows on TV, mm-hmm. and the guys are filming the bears, or let's go to Yellowstone, and they have the, the a season at a pond. And mm-hmm. I always wondered. I want. I wonder if it bothers them guys when they see the the wolves kill a cow elk or the babies or something. Right. And it yeah. did bother you. Yep. That's it, absolutely. Because you had a bond with those birds. I'd, I'd bonded with those birds, and they would eat out of my hand. That's amazing. Wow. Um, I could. They would come running, meeting me, <laughs> and expecting something. And I brought them something. <laughs> I wanted to reward them because they they allowed me to get uh, into their world and see things that. Uh, you know, most people will never see. Uh, even wildlife biologists will never know as much as I learned about those roadrunners because it was a 17 or 18 years of it. So when I was a kid, I had a guy tell me his mother lived at Lake Kemp, and she had a, a, wood, a woodpecker, not a woodpecker, a roadrunner mm-hmm. that would come up and knock on her glass, and she would feed it sardines. And I always yeah. thought he was feeding me, full of me, filling me full of bull. So he may have been telling me the it's truth the on truth. this. It's the truth. They, they, I think a lot of that is they come up and see their reflection and they think it's a, it's a uh, potential mate, and they'll peck on the, on the, on the, uh, the glass. I've seen them do it on our, our doors. There. In fact, I have a pair of uh, roadrunners, Slendon and I do in Benjamin right now. They come up on the porch while we're sitting there drinking wine in the evening and just trot right around our feet and catching bugs. Now, I've, I've always heard that a uh, roadrunner will kill a rattlesnake. Did, yes, did I've observed it several times. That? Yeah, not large rattlesnakes. Right. They, they'll they'll walk off from a big one, mm-hmm. but you take one uh, eighteen inches to possibly twenty two something like that, they will kill it and really? they will eat it on the spot. So how do they do it without getting bit? Do they do they kind of up from above? Well, or? yeah, uh, it's it's real funny. I observed several times um, when a rattlesnake strikes high. If he strikes at the at the bird's head, mm-hmm. uh, a roadrunner will back off. But if the snake strikes low, where the bird can come down on top of him and peck him on the head, mm-hmm. he stays with him and kills him. Huh. But once he gets that first lick in on that rattlesnake's head, 
that snake becomes punch drunk. Right. And he just starts striking wild, and each time he does, bam, that roadrunner hits him. Somebody, uh, one, we go to the hunting shows, and uh, the Texas Trophy Hunters extravaganza, and there's always the big snake pit right. that you see, yeah. and that's how the guy said that they pick their snakes. Uh-huh. If it's a low striker, they keep it. If it's a high there strike, there you go. There you go. The roadrunner's they, been doing that. They let it go <laughs> since the beginning of time. Yep. You know, <laughs> but because I've always said, you know, your boots aren't aren't that incredibly high, and you got some big snakes in here. Yeah. And he said, "Well, we test it." He said, "Every snake is about the same." Mm-hmm. And if it's a low strike, we'll keep it. And if it's high striker, he's gone. We'll and let I, him go. And I've watched it with those roadrunners. Boy, when they start striking high, the roadrunner backs off. Yeah. And just trots away. <laughs> what, what what's the most unique place you've been in texas uh you know i've been to some pretty remote places i mean people don't think that texas has a lot of remoteness to it but it still does uh the chinati mountains in west texas uh i actually spent several days there uh it belongs to parks and wildlife but it still is not open to the public and i actually went in with a helicopter for about eight days and uh and i mean we're talking this is wild and woolly country we're talking mm-hmm. about carmen mountain whitetail skeletons mountain lions i mean it's it was it was wild and woolly where's this at that's in the chinatis uh, down near presidio okay and uh but one of the more interesting areas was probably the last book project that we were on which is on the uh uh the um uh san antonio viejo ranch which is down by hebronville and it was uh, owned by an old rancher, um, the East, Robert East. We just talked about him a couple, two. There you go. Yeah, he's a very interesting person. And he left, uh, he and his sister and mother left this ranch to a foundation. And so um, they, uh, we've been, we were shooting down there in 2013 when it first started getting off the ground. And so it hadn't changed any. And Robert, uh, Mr. East, uh, and his sister and mother, they were very old-fashioned. They wanted to keep it. You know, they allowed no hunting for, no hunting for like a hundred years. No commercial hunting. They didn't even like uh, people going in there at all. Just just bringing people in. They were there. They were very quiet, very reticent people. And so you were walking basically into a time capsule uh, when we went into that that uh, through that gate. You stepped back sixty and seventy years. Wow. And, I mean, we're talking about big deer, big rattlesnakes, everything. <laughs> it was like it was like decades ago. And, and it was, to me, also I think Selena can say this, it was like a small Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah. It was the last frontier in Texas. That's amazing. And Texas is one of the few places that we have, the, the Wagner Ranch was that way, right. where we have untouched beauty up until right. uh, yeah. commercialization takes over. And you right. have to be in the western United States. I'm sure some of the mountain states have places like that. But oh, yeah, but sure. But, but people don't think of Texas as, you know, as having wild and woolly country. But, uh, but uh, the Chinatis and, uh, and the San Antonio Viejo, that's wild and woolly country. I mean, there's photographs uh, from the old days of them killing mountain lions on the on the Viejo, and of course I've seen really big whitetails there that's uh, that the cowboys haven't even seen, and nobody sees them. You know, we we uh, I photographed Selena and I were coming off this last uh, December one afternoon, and there was a triple drop time. Wow, with a doe, Ooh. and nobody had ever seen him from a helicopter. They, of course, they do research there. They actually conduct 
um, a lot of research projects there from uh, Kingsville, Texas A&M at Kingsville, and also in Bryan College Station. And um, they do a big deer project there where they, they, they capture like 200 deer each year. Nobody had ever seen this buck. And all of a sudden, there he was standing there for me. Boom, waiting for me. And I photographed him. <laughs> and he's gone, and nobody's seen him since. Wow. Well, but that stuff is out there. Yeah. Some thick, thick, thick country. And, and, and not to mention the historical um, uh, structures. Uh, see, there's, there are old roads, old trails that go through, crisscross through the Viejo that date back to the late 1700s. Wow. And amazing. the old structures still exist that were built around 1810 are still there out in the brush. They look like kind of like you walk up on them, they're like Mayan temples. You can't see them until you get like 50 yards away, and all of a sudden there they are. Two feet thick walls, uh, rifle port windows where you could set up and, you know, and create a crossfire with any incoming danger. Wow. And it's, it's a fact that uh, Texas Rangers, uh, Rip Ford was there in the 1850s and camped out there. Uh, Robert E. Lee camped there in like 1857 at Rancho Viejo, and I've uh, got photographs of all that stuff. It's amazing. All in Texas. All in Texas. And I, I don't think that there's any doubt. And I'm sure we're gonna we have listeners from across across the nation and across the the world now. Texas is the greatest state in oh, the union. Absolutely. And you know, I've been to a lot of of, of uh, states across the western United States and a few in the eastern portion of the United States. All of them have something very unique. Wyoming. I did a mm-hmm. book uh, on a big ranch in Wyoming. Beautiful, gorgeous state. Fabulous state. I hate the wind. <laughs> too, 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 damn, too damn windy there. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Montana, uh, gorgeous country. I've been to Kentucky and Tennessee, and I love the history of the Civil War and, and all that. But there's nothing like Texas. No. It's got it all. Be, uh, that's what I was going to say. It's kind of got it all. you got beach. All. You've got canyons. You've, you've got, got everything. Mountains, you've got forest. You've got the rivers. You've got it all. You've got it all. We just got back from Padre, and when we did, we come through Kingsville, and we stopped at the store there. Mm-hmm. And that's my favorite part of Texas is that when you go from the valley right. up into that the brush, thick brush country right. and the history that's there, and people just don't get it, what it, what that is. I mean, they just Fantastic. don't understand how how important that is to, to what, where we are today right. and what happened down there. Right. Yeah, You uh, another uh, interesting point about the East is their, their dedication to the land. And you see that a lot in South Texas especially. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the old, uh, it dates back to the Spanish land grants. You know, when, I mean, people own land that long, and they still have that land. And the East were, were no different. You know, uh, Tom T. East purchased the initial portion of that ranch like in 1914, 1915, and then he married uh, Alice Clayburg. And they, instead of going on a honeymoon, they got in a buggy and went right straight to the ranch. <laughs> that was their honeymoon. They, they knew that ranch was everything. That was their life, their home. It meant everything to them. And, uh, and they were raided twice by banditos. Wow. And uh, the Texas Rangers, in fact, the first time, Alice was actually kidnapped. And Tom saw it happening, and he took off and got Texas Rangers. They didn't bother her. All they wanted was like horses, uh, what money they could get, a little food and ammunition. And uh, but they were caught before they got to the border, and and, and everything was uh, brought back. Now, now she was Alice Kleberg. Alice Kleberg. And that's the Kingsville's Kleberg, right? Yes, yes. So they are cousins to the people at the King Ranch. 
was right. her granddaughter right okay right. she had actually she actually owned 20 percent interest into that in that ranch in the king ranch mm-hmm. now you've been all over it too right i've been over been a large it? portion of it yes what's what's the most amazing part of it that oh i don't know it's uh of course that when i was there we were uh doing most of the travel i was shooting uh for ford and so we were just going a b c d you know to taking the vehicles and shooting for an advertisement but um it is it is just enormous and there's there's such a diversity in the habitat you've got sand dunes you've got you've got your uh your beach you know your beaches on the, on the coast you got your thick typical south texas brush you've got your your uh your oak mots you've got a little bit of everything and it's it's on nine hundred thousand acres it's amazing to think that a family has that right you know it went a friend, this is all completely off subject, but I had a kid that worked for me from Kansas, and he used to tell me all the time, he said, well, Texas has everything. Like, what do you mean? He said, well, if I go somewhere and I tell someone I'm from Kansas, they'll never think nothing of it. But he said, by gosh, if you tell them from Texas, he worked down here for three years, he said, so I started telling people I was from Texas. And when he said that, <laughs> people always, well, I got a cousin that lives in Texas, <laughs> automatic conversation. But he told me, like, the King Ranch Ford pickup right. and Texas edition pickups. Uh-huh. He goes, other states don't have that. Right. I said that's because you're a Texan, and that's, that's right. just a different deal. Yeah. And the King Ranch, what an amazing place! It is. It's an amazing place. But there, there are a lot of, a lot of, of, of neat ranches around the state. A lot of them. But the Wagner Ranch could have been a South Texas ranch, couldn't it have? Wagner Ranch was a fabulous place. It yeah. really was. And I spent five years out there photographing it, and uh, it'll always uh, uh, furnish me with fond memories of those five years that I spent out there. I hate to see that it ever changed because that was just the neatest place in the world. You know, it's like, I, it's like I told a group the other day in Houston. I gave a presentation at the Houston Country Club on the, on the Viejo. And I said, you know, my, my dad, I related this story to him, that my dad was born in 1918. And there on the ranch, he would always try to work older men. And I grew up with these old men that were born in the 1880s, 1890s. And I, and I really enjoyed the stories about their lives and always questioned them and appreciated the life that they led and so i hate to see the change that's occurring today in some of these places yeah it breaks my heart it's literally breaks my heart we need more history classes in our kids at school we do they, they, they don't know where they come from or no. what what it's about anymore it needs to be it needs to be uh a little more colorful history you know really getting into the into more intimate details instead of just a standard recipe type history course yeah i uh i graduated from texas tech in 2011 with a degree in education specializing in history and reading and it is it's just it's just kind of a big blob instead of you know and i'd look at things because i enjoy history also and you're thinking i could go so much deeper into this subject Mm -hmm. but i'm on a time crunch because i got to move on to the next one by next week yeah so, you know, no wonder history is boring to a lot of kids it, because it's just this big blot. That's right, exactly. And it could, be, it could be so much more interesting if you had someone that, that would, would take a point and, and go in-depth on it mm-hmm. and, and just bring the kids on a, on a trip, on an excursion, on an adventure. Mm-hmm. And that would really, you know, uh, pique their interest. But as it is at this right now, uh, you know, the technique they use is just like you just sit there and take it. Right. And try to make your grade and move on. Yep. My fondest memories of elementary school – was when we got into Halloween, or not Halloween, Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and we talked about the pilgrims and the Indians. Right. I wanted to talk more about how the Indians survived and the pilgrims and how they, they you know, how, how did they, their, their first 
shelters they live. I wanted sure. all of that. Yes. Instead of it was well, we had a big feast and blah blah blah. Yeah. Was into it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, and I never got all of that. And so when we go somewhere, I like to go places I've never been. Sure. And I don't want to be in the big cities. I want to be on the back roads and see things. Exactly. And where I'm going through with going to with this is you and your brother created which a museum piece is what i think and i don't know why schools aren't wanting you to do field trips or have they yet not yet tell them about what y'all did well um we had a hunting camp uh and the the drought of 2011 just just totally destroyed the trees and so we had we we decided to go look for another location basically we just had a place where we pitched a tent each winter and we'd stay a weekend you know that kind of a deal but it was cool cool location and um so my brother found this this spot, not not you know maybe two three hundred yards from there, that was in a in an old creek, that had a nice little uh, a dale you know with trees and a little flat area. And he said, "Man, we got a good place here we can put our tent." And so we were down there looking at it one day, and he said, "Why don't we just build a dugout?" You know, because our mother lived in a dugout during the Depression years, although her memories of it are not good. <laughs> I try to remind her that she was probably warmer than everybody else. Yeah. And uh, but she didn't like it because, you know, just the, the stigma of living in a dugout. And um, so we decided that we would we were going to build a dugout like like mom lived in. And so um, we uh, we undertook this project and took us about eight months to, to get it finished because we didn't work on it all the time. Just just on a weekend or maybe go two weeks without working on it. But uh, we constructed it. Um, uh, with uh, with safety in mind, and and I remember seeing an old dugout back in the 70s. I would ride by it horseback when I was working cattle, and I remembered the the uh, the ridge pole. And then uh, we were arguing one day about a, having a ridge pole or not. And Celinda said, "You better get a ridge pole because that's going <laughs> to strengthen that thing, you know, because you're going to have about three tons of dirt on top of it. And if it caves in, it's over right now." That's right. And so we ended up putting a big ridge pole, which thank goodness we did. Because there is a lot of soil on top, but anyway, wow. we it's uh, it will be here way past our lifetime and and uh, possibly past the next generation. Well, I kept up with it on Facebook like most of America did because right. you would update and it it would you know and I kept waiting. Boy, I can't wait till they do it again, and I couldn't wait till you got the floors in. <laughs> and I, I remember the first time you killed the rattlesnake in there, and you wrote something about it. Yeah, you, you didn't kill the rattlesnake because you don't ever kill rattlesnakes. Well, I don't kill unless they're just you know really invading my my space or if i don't have time to take them off if i don't if i've if i've got a little extra time i'll take the snake and throw him a pickup and i'll take him off four or five miles and let him go you'll pick him up no no i've got a snake oh, okay. i will not okay. i will not touch one of them. okay but uh but no we uh those around the dugout uh, i think i've let two or three go but the others i've, I've killed them because uh, there was a group of us there and i didn't want to spend the time to take him off somewhere well, I kept thinking to myself, because I'm terrified of snakes. Yeah. That's the only thing in Petrified. the world. I, yeah. You bring a grizzly bear in here, I'd be okay. But you bring a yeah. rattlesnake in here, and I'm leaving. Yeah, they, <laughs> and don't, they don't bother. Now, we've had some, we've actually had some uh, bull snakes inside the dugout. Oh. How do they But get we in? let them in. We let them stay because hmm. uh, because they, they take care of any mice that might be in there. We have no mice inside. You got snakes, course, but but the snakes are gone now. Oh, I don't know. Right. They, I guess they got bored, you know, and and uh, on that on that rat and mouse diet, and that was it. You know, they didn't have any variety, and they pulled out. So, so we have no snakes in there. I haven't seen this dugout. Like Jeff's on Facebook, and 
if any listeners give give these what is the layout of this dugout when you how many square feet and oh, all that cuz you say golly. there's snakes in here and I'm yeah, picturing well th- we we built we tried to build it snake proof mm-hmm. but that's hard to do yeah anytime that you build a structure underground and you're dealing with erosion uh you you've got various issues that that's uh multiple issues that you know that keep you from being totally snake proof I think it's rattlesnake proof except for a small, a very small rattler. But, uh, but I don't think a big, big snake can get in there. It's, uh, we, we, we did our work, and we planned it nicely. Now, you've got the, the walls are wood, right? Yes, the walls are uh, 01-12s. We actually tore down an old smokehouse. Uh, gosh, that probably dates back to the 20s. And we used that as the interior uh, walls itself not not the the structural you know the the actual um skeleton of the of the dugout are uh, um eight by tens big eight by tens because we knew that there were going to be a lot of weight and um and the the horizontals on top of the vertical eight by tens are more eight by tens and each one of them are spiked in with 10 inch metal spikes so nothing moves yeah and then the uh, the actual rafters themselves or the ceiling joists are uh, are like eight foot I mean eight inch poles and they are driven in with ten inch spikes into the horizontals and so everything is secured and everything is is uh, can support a lot of weight because I, I you know each time we go in there we think especially if it rains we we think uh, we often will speak about how much weight must be bearing on those on those oh, poles? It's got to be enormous. And if and if it did cave in, it would be instantaneous, and that'd be it. And the people that are listening in America, that they're still thinking, well, this guy's got a cellar he's sleeping in. You've got rock floors. I got a stone floor. We were going to leave it a dirt floor, but we thought, hey, you know, it's down there at this old creek bottom, and it's going to get muddy, and we'll track, you know, and who wants to sweep dirt floors? Right. And <laughs> and because I'm I used to have a hobby of laying rock. I told my brother, I said, well, let's go find some rock, and I'll lay a floor. And so, so we, put, we put the floor down, then we put a wood stove in, and we, then we constructed a table. And that in itself was something else. Uh, we found an old pine tree in a shelter belt that we counted the rings, and it dates back to 1935. Wow. So it was killed in the, in the drought of 2011. Mm-hmm. It was 84 inches, uh, 84 inches around. Whew. And so we cut, we had to use a 18 inch chainsaw, cut it two ways, we felled the tree, and then we, we cut it into an eight foot length, which weighed about 500 pounds, that eight foot length of it. And then I had sliced it down the middle, down the middle and then rolled it over and sliced it and then it fell apart. And then we took a dolly and loaded those in a trailer. And then we took it to the dugout and then we sliced them again to make an outside table and an inside table. And so we have a serving table outside and a dining table inside made out of an old pine tree that seated, was seated in like 1935. You got a lot of respect for the old logger, don't you? Yes, you do. So when you... Uh, I'm looking w- at pictures of it right now. It's, it's an amazing piece of And you finally had to put a, a thing across the roof to keep the cows off, right? Yes, I we had some cattle grazing up there and, and piddling around, and we thought that's all we need is four or five head of cattle on top. You know, to add to the weight, and so we actually put some uh, some uh, eight-inch poles in the ground, and then we put some uh, uh, some paneling around it to keep the cattle off. 
and the, and the wild hogs as well because we didn't want hogs up there rooting around. Yeah. Now, there's bedrooms in this? bedroom. No, 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 it's just, just one room. Just it's, one it's, room? We're talking about a basic dugout that would that a family, an old family in the 30s would probably love. Oh, it would have been cat's meow. Your yeah, mom's it, it, dugout wasn't that nice. <laughs> right, right. Mom's dugout was probably a little bigger, but this this is a very, very secure, nice dugout. I mean, you build a fire in it, uh, you know, you put a handful of wood in that stove and it'll run you completely out. And it it just it's just so insulated. It's it's not a half dugout. I mean, it is a full, on the ground. You know, the roof's on the ground dugout. It's a lot better than those ones back at the back on the Cap Rock where those guys were fighting off the Indians trying to survive a winter. Yeah, time. right, right. Yeah, it's a little more secure. It's incredible. I want to get back to the bull snake now. When you're, are you, is the bull snake in there when you're in there? Yeah, we've seen him in there. Oh. Uh, we've got his actually have his skin hanging from some deer antlers in there. We've collected two sets of skins that he they laid out for us. <laughs> and you can you can walk in it. and see a coil of him hanging over mm. the edge, and we'd say, "Well, there's there he is, there's old <laughs> Mr. Bull Snake. He's back again doing his job, keeping the mice." Do you think Mother Nature ever scared you? Have you ever in, been scared out in the woods ever? Yeah, yeah. I had a moose after me in Alaska one time, and that boogered me. No, that's a, that's a mean animal. They're, yeah, yeah. It was in a rut, and it was in Denali, and a, and a, a big bull got after me. That boogered me a little bit, and then uh, how'd had you some, how'd you get away from it? Uh, the guide, the man who guided us up on the mountain, who was a biologist, said, whatever you do, if a moose gets after you, you run. Mm-hmm. He said, if a grizzly gets after you, you stand there Ugh. and pray. That'd be a and tough pray. call. But he said, if a, if a bull moose gets after you, you just run because he wants you away from there. And that's what I did. He chased hit. after you, too? He went after me for maybe 30 yards or so. That was enough, was Then it? he stopped. Then he just threw his head up like that and said, you know, keep moving. And I'm sure you were happy, appreciative that he and stopped. And I just moved him down yards. the mountain. Yeah. Did you run into any grizzlies on that trip? Yeah, we saw 19, 19 grizzlies in 10 days. How close did you get to them? Uh, probably the closest was maybe 30 yards, thereabouts. That's, that's about two seconds for a grizzly yeah, bear. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's just a, a wow. You know, the Alaskans are, are, are neat people, but they're a whole lot different than us because it seems to me Alaska is the end of the road for a lot of people. It seems that way. It seems that way. It's kind of like far west Texas. Yes. Yeah. It's the end of the road. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're talking about like Lajitas and places like, I mean, not Lajitas, but Terlingua. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of people there. It's like, that's the last stop. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Bus don't go no further than that. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean, but, yeah. you know, you get that feeling whenever yeah. you're in that area. No, that, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. So what, what's your favorite book you've ever done? Now, that's a tough question because each one is special. When you're working on it, I mean, you're giving your all to that book. And, and, and for a period, that's your best book. But I guess the Viejo book, as far as just, as just really neat adventure in, in an untapped land, the Viejo book was probably the neatest book. Uh, probably a very interesting book uh, that'll always, always um, I'll, I'll think of it with fondness, would be the Texas Rivers book. Because I was spent so much time with John Graves, the author mm-hmm. of Goodbye to a River. It took us three years to do it. I traveled 36,000 miles wow. on six rivers in Texas. And then spent weeks with John Graves along these rivers. And, and just really a great time. Met a lot of people along the rivers. And see, we didn't, we didn't go to state parks or anything. We went to private land holdings. And so I saw places along the Canadian and the... The, uh, the Sabinal and, and the Natchez 
that other people will not get to see because it's uh because we made connections that could get us there mm-hmm. and i wanted to i wanted to uh uh show you know the readership there are still great places that uh, that are that are fit to be to be preserved so now you said the Roadrunner book took you 17 years to do. Actually, I, I started that in 70, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, in, in about 76, I started shooting Roadrunner pictures and I finished it in 90, 90 and published it in 90, something like 92, I can't remember. Yeah, thereabouts. So when you're working on years. a project, is it, are there times where you're just frustrated and you have to get away or are you the type of person that just drives harder? No. You you have to get away from it. You can't uh-huh. just you can't just go down there and just shoot and shoot and just keep on going. Right. You've got to break loose and 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 take a respite. And you get new ideas. You go back with a fresh fit, fresh view and a fresh outlook on, right. on what needs to be done. If you get too involved in it, you just you just come immersed and you just kind of like become stagnant. Right. And so you have to get away from it. But is it hard to when you, so it took you seventeen years? Is it hard to kind of okay? I've got to shoot. Roadrunners now is it hard to flip that switch that yeah but i flipped it because <laughs> that was long enough yeah. now if i found a roadrunner nest today in a cactus i would actually spend weeks and photograph just that nest because i photographed in mesquite trees cedar trees you know you name it other bushes but but in a cactus that's what i wanted to get i would love to get a roadrunner's nest in a cactus in a choya or a prickly pear, and I'd work the devil out of it. But until then, roadrunners are not on the front burner of me for me photographing right now. I let them when they go past me. I just kind of salute them, and say it was a good time. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had what my about time. Texas Jaguar. Texas Jaguar. Do we got any going coming across from Mexico yet? I don't think so. But that's interesting. You'd say that one of the uh, one of the um, windmills on the Viejo is called Tigre, and Tigre is Jaguar in Spanish. And so, uh, and windmills are generally named after animals, canyons, people. And so we can't prove it, but chances are very good that jaguar were seen at one time on this ranch. The reason they named that windmill Tigre. Now they're coming into Arizona from old Mexico. They are coming into Arizona, but that Arizona's probably got some woolier country than we've got. Have you, have you ever, you photograph mountain lions? I've only seen them in steel traps in Mexico. Oh, okay. Right. That's an elusive animal. Because they, they say that there's some around here, but we, we were arguing uh, the other day that if there's anybody in this country that would have seen one, it would be you. I've, I have flown, walked, driven, you know, ridden all over this country, and I've never even seen a track. However, I have seen evidence that I think is pretty significant of a, of a mountain lion on a big ranch 60 miles west of here. Okay. You, you know, Where I used to trap, <laughs> and it's and I'm sure it's a young male that is coming through. Right. Yeah. You know, a kid ran over one at Grayford this year. Yeah, uh, there's actually been one. I see a friend of mine caught one in a in a snare near Breckenridge years ago when he was a government trapper. He was a young, very young animal, and they, and they'll they'll break off when you know whenever they're kicked out, kicked away from the mom, especially a little male. There's no telling how. I'm not a mountain lion expert, right. but I'm told that they will really travel. I've got a trapper that hunts with us, and he 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 got Where's one. Where's he out of Cisco? No, no, he's out of the Fort Worth. He's a fireman in Fort Worth, mm-hmm. but he's he has a 
he caught one last year on the Trinity River somewhere over in that area. Really? I don't know yeah. exactly where it was at, but yeah. he did catch one. Yeah. But it was, it, you know, just something unusual. Right, right. I well, mean, we they were here. Uh, we know that from the journals of buffalo hunters. Uh, uh, Frank Collinson, uh, John Cook, Jay Wright Moore spoke of them a lot of being in this region. Uh, black bear, they killed black bear at here on the Brazos, they always talking about seeing black bear going into caves on the Brazos River, uh, on the double mountain fork of the Brazos, um, and scanning mountain lines, and then stuffing them with uh, material and taking them to Fort uh, Griffin and scaring other hunters with them. <laughs> they were here, uh, as were, were the wolves, but the wolves were killed out in about 1914. So we had wolves here in yes, Texas. Yes, we, we, had, we had the now extinct buffalo wolf. They're no longer, um, it's an extinct species, subspecies. Were, were, they, were they smaller than the? No, no, than they the were a big, large, very large wolf. Oh, okay. Very large wolf. Uh, in fact, there's been two wolf traps found on ranches uh, west of Benjamin. And um, um, they were the old, the old four and a half new house with wolf on them, with the old original uh, four-pronged drag they were found by uh, guys that were uh, grubbing mesquites and so nobody uses those except for the old wolfers and they date back to 1895 to 1911 i'd like to, i'd like to see one of those that, that, they had to have had like a, a smaller a shorter coat or something they couldn't uh with well the heat well yeah it's like it's like the uh, the mexican gray wolf or uh down out they used to be in west texas you know uh, i think maybe the canis lupus bailei or texensis you know they they're not going to have the coats you know that your uh, northern wolves are going to have right. but uh frank collinson talks about killing wolves up on the tongue river ranch in uh late 1800s and saying that there were 150 pound wolves mm -hmm. that he skinned them and kept them as rugs I've and got so a black some. lab who it's it's a little he's a little bit bigger than the average he's probably close to close to a hundred pounds, and we were up in Canada goose hunting and we saw some wolves yeah and I thought I had I thought I'd seen a big dog yeah and then I yeah. saw six wolves trotting yeah. across the barley field yeah they are a big animal they are I saw one in Alaska actually he was only about fifty yards away and he just sat down and sat there and watched me oh and he was not an old wolf but he was a big wolf. And I saw one eating on a, on a caribou, and a grizzly bear chased them off. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're big, big animals. But, they, but the wolves, uh, um, they, once they, they killed off the bison, and they were forced to start on the cattle. And, the so, and so it was an all-out war on the, on the, uh, the Texas buffalo. It was all-out war. Everything, poison, traps, uh, any way that they could kill a wolf, they did. And so by about 1914, now my dad told me a story when I was a kid, and this happened during the Depression years. He, saw, he said on the Ross Ranch, which is about, uh, what, 15 miles west of Benjamin, one of the cowboys came in one day, and he said he was scared to death. And they asked him what was wrong. He said, I just saw a wolf on Bird Creek. And he said he was a three-legged wolf, a big, big black wolf, and a lot of them were black back then as as there were silver and it was three-legged three-legged caught in a trap and and possibly it could have been an old wolf moving through one of the last ones wow last of the the old lobos coming through but it scared this guy to death <laughs> and that was he said i that was in the 30s 
And it was down by that old house down in there? Uh, it was on Bird Creek. It was in those big canyons that, that's going to be uh, down the creek from that old house. Yep. I always heard, heard a story about that lady that lived there. Her husband was a Texas Ranger? That I don't know. Oh, uh, I don't know that story. And said some Indians come up last Indians in the territory, yeah. I guess, and she went outside on the front porch to run them off, mm -hmm. and they saw his gun. Okay, okay, I, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Bird, Mrs. Bird, Ella yes. Bird Dumont. Yeah, they, she lived, she lived, uh, they actually lived west of where that old Ross Camp is. Okay. Uh, just over the fence line on the Masterson Ranch. All right. I've actually been to that campsite and found 44 Henry cartridges there. So that wasn't her old house then? No. Okay. No, that house was, uh, I have the cornerstone to that house built in 1916. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she was a Dumont from like the little Ella, town of Dumont? Ella Bird Dumont. She, when, when Mr. Bird died, she married a Mr. Dumont. And I'm assuming the little town was named after right. him. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Of all the people you've met, who mm -hmm. are the most interesting people that you've got to meet in your travels? Oh, my goodness. That's another tough one. Oh, my goodness. Uh, definitely not politicians. Uh, <laughs> just just common people. Along the rivers, uh, there were some very interesting people that we met. Um, East Texas, along the Pecos, very interesting. Um, anytime I can visit with old ranchers, the old people, those were the most interesting. The older they were, the more interesting they were. Because I, I'm always, um, I always have questions about the old days, what it was like, and I cherish their stories. And uh, I did when I was a kid, and I still do today. My grandfather just passed away at 98. He would have been 99 earlier this month. Mm -hmm. World War II vet and stuff, and he had a mind still. He everything sharp as a tack still. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed asking him questions because you can't repeat that ever again. Right. And it's it's that's one of the reasons that I was talking about uh, previously that uh, before we started uh, this conversation that I I like to uh, interview some of the older people that still that are still around yeah. and have and are still uh, have a good memory and uh, and I Hazel Stockton she was ninety something years old and I've got a couple of hours of interview with her and uh, of course Danny Mac Hudson and uh, just. I asked him about the people that I remember my dad speaking of, and they could really go into the history of those those people's lives, because I, I just think it's so important to to appreciate, understand, and appreciate um, more than what we have. You know, wh who made it possible for us to have what we have today, mm -hmm. and it's, it's those old people. Yes, you yep. know they they cut the trail for us. And lived and, a and hard I, life. And, I, and they lived a hard life, and that's one of the reasons we, my brother and I wanted to build a dugout as a salute to the old times and the old people, their old ways. And, um, and, um, and I still relate the old stories to my boys that I was told by my father and his friends who are now long gone. I love my dad talking about just, and it was in the 40s when he grew up, you mm -hmm. know, and he talks about the train and the mail truck. I mean, just the things that we don't, right. that we take for granted that was a true ice, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? Yeah. And the old timers, they had ice, they put sawdust on it back in the days. I mean, just things exactly. that we, air conditioning. I mean, that yeah. just was a hard, hard, hard life. You know, and in, in, in regards to air conditioning, in the old jail that uh, that, we, that I lived in and raised my boys in, and Celinda was there for a while and had to endure a little of it, <laughs> 18 years without an air conditioner. Whew. 
Oh. And and I actually know what those old timers went through. I mean, we had a ceiling fan in the bedroom, and at night, you would wet the bed down with a with a uh, uh, say a Windex bottle of water, and then you take a shower, wet the bed down, lay down, and you'd squirt water up in the air to rain down on you to keep you cool. This is in the middle of the summer, until you go to sleep, and then you wake up about two o'clock and you do it again. Wow, that's how you that's how you went that, all summer long. See, I grew up poor, uh-huh. and I grew up didn't have an air conditioning central heat and air until I was in about sixth grade, uh-huh. and I remember, but I didn't know I was hot. Yeah. I didn't know any better. Yeah, yeah, you know <laughs> that's that's true. You know, like back we, then the old days they yeah. didn't know any better. It was it, that was life. You just accepted it. Yeah, it's like my mother talking about, you know, uh, uh, you know they they uh, their daddy or her daddy was was an old trapper during the depression, and uh, he, he they ate ducks, they ate geese, they fished, they they got so hungry one time he brought in a possum. Wow. But they couldn't eat him. They just, they said, we all sat drew, there and looked at that possum. We was hungry, but we just backed away from the table. Drew, drew the line <laughs> at the possum. That's whenever you really kind of hit that point where like, wow, you know, things are tough now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, you know, at least they knew where their meat was coming from. You they go to the did. grocery store here and, and you like, start like, to wonder how long it's been on the shelf. She had a, she had a half-sister one time. There's rattlesnake bit, and her daddy kept – her sister her half sister's foot in a bucket of kerosene and spit snuff in it all night long and that's wow. how she got over it she got over it yeah wow yeah that is amazing were, now, were you a bit are you a big fan of the indians and oh yeah and their I, stuff I, you I collect a lot of their stuff i don't collect it much i did when i was a kid but it's not a big deal i mean i don't go out and look for it today but yeah i mean i'm very familiar with the history of the of the comanche and and those various tribes right did, did, did the chiefs or the they used to cut the squaws achilles so they couldn't run off or is that a, a wives tale that yeah. i'm i'm not certain about that uh, I, I have a book uh, let's see uh 33 years with wild Ind- the indians that was written by colonel dodge in about 18 and 78 or 1880 and i don't recall him talking about that now they would cut their noses of their their women off if they cheated on them if the women cheated They'd cut their noses off. I didn't know that. Yeah, Oof. but I don't know about cutting their Achilles tendon. No, it's, we, we it, I always find it interesting when the you, you see today we've got to be so politically correct to everything. Right. And with the Indians, you got to make sure you don't call them an Indian. It's got to be right. a Native American, and you got to give them this and give them that and give them this. Those people today have no clue what the people before, what the actual Indians did. No, no. they couldn't survive that way. I'm giving an example of of how we've been watered down. Uh, Dodge writes in his book, he said the the best tracker, white tracker that he ever had could not hold a candle to the worst Indian tracker he ever had. Yeah, I believe it. And he said the only tracker that was as good or even better than an Indian was a Mexican who was raised with the Indians. <laughs> <laughs> he said they were trackers. Yeah, and and that's one of the reasons that when my boys were small, I would take them out into the rough country and actually make them track me. I would make them close their eyes and give them five minutes, and I would set up a trail, and then I would perch myself up on a hill where I could watch them try to unravel my trail, <laughs> and I tried to teach them how to track. 
That's a lost art now. It is. Oh, yeah. It and is. Nobody knows how to track anymore. Right. You ever watch any of these survival shows and laugh at the way no. that people? Oh, I do. I mean, I watch them long enough to laugh a little and I turn them off. <laughs> what gets me is the ones that get hungry. And I'm thinking, boy, yeah. they're not hunters or fishermen. Uh, it's just not. I don't, I don't get into that at all. It's, it's, I refuse to watch them. So there's going to be uh, photographers listening to this all over America. Let's talk. What What is your camera? All that. Let's nerd it out for them and give them all the specs. <laughs> well, the I'm great a, Wyman Menzer I, uses. I'm I'm not uh, into uh, you know big into into equipment. It's just the bare necessities. I use a a Canon 5D Mark III, a 1DX, and a 7D Mark II. And uh, for a long lens, I'll have a 100 to 400. I'm not into the really big, heavy, fast lenses. I've I've used 800, 5.6s. Canon mm-hmm. is the, are the cameras I use, and um, um, I'm not into the big, heavy, fast ones. With the digital age came the ability to use, you know, slower lenses because you could you could uh, up the ISO and still get good mm-hmm. good resolution. And um, probably my favorite lens is a. 24 to 105 if i had to walk across america with one camera and one lens it'd be a 5d mark 3 or a mark 4 with a with a 24 to 105 so that you would be you, you had mentioned take getting a shot of that deer that had the drop time right is are your cameras set up and ready to go or are you just so fast that you can kind of you know what the light is and you can just when i'm in a situation like that like when Selena and i are out in, down in photographing whitetails for instance mm-hmm. we're in a polaris ranger and I'll have uh, two cameras. I'll have a 5D and a 1DX. 5D will have like the, the 100 to 200 on it. And then the uh, 1DX will have the 100 to 400. Mm-hmm. And I can reach and grab whatever I need. Right. It's, it's right there by my, by my side. Locked and ready to go. Right. You, you know, you, what, you, what you're doing is you, you, you understand what you're probably going to run into. Mm-hmm. And so your equipment, you've already got it pre-selected. I know I'm not going to need a 16 to 35. When I'm in South Texas, if I'm there in the rut, I have no need for a 16 to 35. <laughs> it's going to be either the the 70 to 200 or the 100 to 400, and so those are my two primaries. Are you are you amazed by the technology we've gotten with the iPhone capped cameras for just the average? Deal I like love me? a dadgum iPhone camera so much. I've shot a cover shot with it. <laughs> Did you really? Oh, yeah, it's it's amazing how good these things are. I mean, yeah. I. Unless, and I'm I'm talking to more and more professional photographers who don't use their 35s unless they have to, and I'm the same way. I'll grab this iPhone and go for it. Yeah, That's, you know, unless I, I need a telephoto. Right. If I'm doing landscape or something, I have no problem shooting an iPhone it's because because once you tip it out, you know, you do it a say at eight by twelve uh, or a, yeah twelve by eight at three hundred DPI thirty six hundred. Uh, uh, long you're talking about a 50 meg file right you can go up you know 16 by 20 20 by 24 easy magazine shot easy right and so it's it's amazing that's amazing i bet canon and kodak hate apple probably do (laughs) i remember when uh you know just 10 years ago you'd have they almost every group that we had out here would have that old phone uh camera that you had to crank right (laughs) yeah yeah, that's they're not there anymore. Uh, it's all everybody's got their got their iPhone. And yeah, you bet you. Um, so when the digital, when everybody started to switch to digital, did did you kind of resist that? Because you always hear of people like when vinyl records were yeah, popular, yeah. And, and I resisted know. it because I, I'm an old Kodachrome guy. Uh-huh. I started in the '70s. Uh, 
um, and I used both the Hasselblad in the can in the 35 millimeters. And I was a Kodachrome guy, Velvia guy, all the way. And when they came out digital, man, I fought it. <laughs> and finally, I realized that I was going to have to. And, I, and it was slow. I mean, I would use film a little, and I used digital. And finally, I just kind of. But people were seeing a transition back to film to some extent. And I actually shoot a little bit of film now in my Hasselblad. Really? I, I still shoot some transparency film, yes. Do you think that there's a, a – because you hear people like that listen to records, and they're like, oh, vinyl's got this – This there's just a yeah. sound that you can't describe. Is yeah. there something with the there's film a pictures? There's that, a look about it. Yeah, there, there's – it's almost – digital is almost as like, that's surreal. Right. But – but with film, it's like, yeah, that's that's more like what I saw. Yeah. And then, and also with digital, you have the issue with people who are who are very good with Lightroom and Photoshop, mm-hmm. and and they're really pumping up these images, and that's something I don't like to see, because I'm I'm a guy who likes I like to to see what what I saw. I like I like to present what I actually saw. Right. And and I can t- I can look at an image and I know right off the bat if they pumped it up, and then you know it's a little bit iffy. So you don't iffy. do much editing on yours. The only thing I'll do a little cropping. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That when I'll really do some color work is if I'm I'm uh, scanning old Kodachrome or mm-hmm. Velvia. It doesn't scan what you, what the 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 slide really shows. Right. So you have to go in and pull out some blue. It's okay. a, it, it it actually scans to blue too cold and so you got to go in photoshop and pull some of that blue back and go oh, okay that's, that's the slide right there that's what it was and that's when i do most of my work sometimes you'll screw up <laughs> you know on a really good shot and you go, oh yeah. god i'm a i'm a you know two-thirds of a stop off and you'll kind of go okay nobody look but i'm kind of kind of fudge a little bit yeah but 90 i shoot i shoot digital like i shot film i try to make that first shot work Mm-hmm. And not sit there and shoot, you know, and and do a lot of bracketing, right? Because I, like I say, when you grew, when I was teaching at Tech and uh, over in MassCom teaching photography, up until the last couple of years that I taught, they I always made them use film transparencies, because I told them I said if you can shoot transparency well, digital is easy, it's easy, very easy, and they loved film. And those that came into my class who had started out digital got to where they loved film. Really? Because it had to be right on the money. Right. It has no latitude. Uh-huh. You've got to be perfect with it for it to come out right. Almost almost perfect, 90%. And yeah. it made them think. Yeah. And so when I pick my Hasselblad up today, I find myself thinking more about the shot. That's amazing. Did you have any young Wyman Menzer in your class? Any certain student that yeah, just I had, really... Yeah, I, sev- I had several really good shooters. Uh... Some of them, I had a couple of people went to New York. Uh, one of them, I don't know, she still may be up there. Uh, uh, Jared Foster is actually a Ph.D. there now and teaches, and he's a hell of a good photographer, hell of a photographer. Um, I had some guys that uh, that didn't actually go into photography that could have. Uh, I had one or two that probably could have shot for National Geographic, but they just chose something else. But uh, while they were in the class, they they made a good showing. Now you gave the commencement speech, is that correct? In 99, yes. That's a hell of honor. That was. That was spooky. 
that's got to be one of the greatest speaking. accomplishments of your life. Yeah, well, it, it, it was one of those deals where when I was approached by a professor friend of mine, he said, now, I still remember him saying, uh, I'm going to ask you something here and think about it before you answer me. And I went, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> he said, would you be interested in giving the commencement address? Well, of course, my first instinct was say, oh, hell no, I don't want to give him a commencement. <laughs> but I knew it was too much of an honor. Yeah. And it was at my old alma mater, mm-hmm. and I couldn't pass it up. And I said, "You bet you, I'll do it." That's kind of. I'll like do a- it. I'll do it on. I'll do it on on the uh, basis that you, that I when I write it, you okay it. I want it right. I want it to be a positive message. Mm-hmm. And when I finished with it, he looked at it and he said, "It's a good one." I mean, it's yeah. like a crown jewel of your lifetime accomplishments. Uh, yeah, it's that that was up there because. Because I wasn't your stellar student. <laughs> You've been a more of a, an actor student. I was a I was a good field man. Yeah. I was a good field man. <laughs> I didn't like classroom work, and so to stand up there and speak to a university setting like that, you know, and try to give an inspirational speech, that was a big deal for me, mm-hmm. and I felt very proud in doing it. You're kind of a maverick, and that's kind of what makes the world the best that, leaders. You know, really, it, because I talked to my friends <laughs> who I went to school with. They tell me stories I don't remember. But obviously, <laughs> they viewed me in that way. Yeah. that's that, that I was just a little bit out there. I remember one day walking across campus carrying a coyote hide. This was 1973. <laughs> floating in the wind looks. behind me. And I, and I look back on it today, and I'm going, Jesus, oh. there's no telling what people. Because I remember I was walking in front of the, the library. And the looks that I was getting, you know, carrying this coyote hide to show a professor, here's this coyote hide, what do you think about it, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, but yeah, I, I was kind of a maverick. You think about say. the most stuffy shirt kids watching you that was at school in 1973. Yeah. Look at that old redneck over there. What's yeah. he think? I'm sure a lot of them thought that. Some yuppie from uh, from Dallas. Yeah. But, you know, it's, you know, I, I uh, try to stay in touch with as many of the people that uh, that I can who I went to school with. And um, got some good memories. Got some great memories about about tech. Thank God there wasn't iPhones back then, though. No, no that's kidding. Right. Yeah, I'm 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 very happy for that yeah. myself. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is a strong proponent yes. of that. <laughs> I had way too much phone when I was younger. <laughs> yeah. So last week, when I, when I asked you to do this, and you told me you would do it, you were at was it Corpus Christi? You was at George H. Bush's Presidential Library signing books or something? No. I think. Uh, where was I? We were in Houston. I believe we were in Houston. Yeah, we were at Houston Country Club. I was giving a presentation And you've there. been to both presidential libraries as guest of the president? Right, right, right. And you're at the Big Honker Lodge. I mean, that speaks highly of us. If yeah. You're I know. Well, listen, I'm, I'm honored to be here. <laughs> we're moving up. That's a moving You know, it's like last night. We were, we were at, at, at uh, the Ranching Heritage Center at Tech, and they were having a meet and greet the commissioners there. And I had some game wardens I was talking to. And uh, one of them said something. He said something to the effect of, you know, thanks for taking time to talk to me. And I said, no, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. You guys are my heroes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the way I feel. Yep. And, and no, I'm not stepping down coming to the Honker Lodge. I am honored to be here. Well, I, I appreciate that. We are honored to have you. Now, before we let you go, uh, you are your big association with Yeti. And yes. Yeti has had, uh, uh, you know, the NRA deal. We did a whole episode on it. Jeff and I did. Right. 
and I am on Yeti's side here. Yeti, right. I, the way I read it is Yeti simply stopped a program. Right. Right. That's is all it, and it was about thirty other organizations that right. that Yeti quit the uh, that's what this I program. Saw. That's what I and I, I I kept in contact with Yeti over the whole duration, and and I still believe that it was just a business decision. Right. And it was taken wrong by the NRA. I'm a life member of the NRA. I continue to contribute and I always will. They're on the front lines for us. Sure. But I think in this case, probably eh, they probably you know went a little too far, and I'm I'm behind Yeti. And I and I think that the NRA is continuing to uh, hype this up. Like now, I, I saw a campaign where they'll send you an NRA sticker and you can cover up your Yeti sticker. Right. Right. So I th- I don't know if I don't know if this is something that the NRA is trying to boost their uh, members or what it is. But I yeah. I, I think the NRA knows it's not that big of a deal, and I think they're yeah. making it a bigger deal. Right. I just think it's an unfortunate thing because Yeti, I know both Yeti, well, especially especially um, uh, uh, Roy. Mm-hmm. Um, Roy and his brother are big-time outdoorsmen, big-time right. hunters, big-time fishermen. And I just don't think they would have made that decision that was a, on a, a more you know politically correct right angle i just don't think that, they did. that's kind of my take i don't think that you know they know where their bread's buttered at and it's right. with the outdoorsmen right and i don't think that they would have done it anything right. intentionally yeah to piss that yeah that I, I, they're, they're good people we spent a lot of time with them when they did that film uh year or so back um chasing light that's right they did all a, good Yeti pe- did a film on yes them. and it just good people three days of filming 12-man uh, film crew just fabulous people fabulous all the way um you know and it's uh i just think it's unfortunate i do too well jeff, t- jeff was over there he was calling me a moron no i said <laughs> i don't even want to get into what i said don't matter right now anyways just, that's, that's that's two weeks ago news for us yeah, anyway it, it really yeah. is but I, I think the NRA is a great thing, and I think they're the Absolutely. only lobbying tool that we really have. Absolutely. And so I don't want to trash them in any way. Absolutely. And, and, and I really believe that. But I'm going to tell you, I appreciate you being on here, Wyman. And Thank you for I having me. I could have Matthew McConaughey sitting here. We could have Elton John. We could have George Strait. And there's going to be another George Strait, another Elton John, another Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. But there might not be another Wyman Menzer in this country. <laughs> well. Some people probably hope there's not. No, I've, I've, <laughs> that, that is the honest to God truth. There's not very many people like you left on this planet. Well, I, that's uh, I'm honored that you would say that and yes. think of me in that in that manner because it's like I say I try to I try to I try to embrace the new, but never forget the old ways. You know, yeah. because I think it's so important that we teach our younger younger people, uh, you know, where you know how how they achieved what they have there were people before them that suffered a lot for us to have what we have today and it's very important that we always remember that well you better be glad i'm not a teacher in school around here because my kids would be coming i would have you in our classroom <laughs> as often as i could to teach them now where do we where do yeah, we where get, can people find your books find at? all your stuff that you want to find it's uh there at uh at santa fe on the brazos at, uh, at wymanmenzer.com okay you go to santa fe on brazos and we will uh Send out any books uh, that's that's still in print. I can't recall exactly. I think there's maybe twenty, what, uh, twenty or so still in print, mm-hmm. and uh, and I will sign to anybody. Uh, there's no extra cost with with autographing a book. Uh, that's just my job. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm honored to do it. If someone thinks enough of my book to purchase it, I will write whatever they want me to write in it. I've got most every one of them signed in my house. 
Great. I appreciate that. And I'm going to give it to his son, my oldest grandson. Great. To keep till he dies, too. And then give it to my next grandson. Thank you very it's much. Treasure. <laughs> Anyways, Thanks I appreciate you so much coming in. Thank you, guys. And I know you're a very busy man, and thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Have a good week, guys. Dive Bomb Silhouettes, they are the bomb. Field tested and guide approved. Folks, these are the real deal. We use them every day here at Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. They're durable and they look great. You ever have troubles getting decoys in the ground, hard dry fields or frozen fields? Not with the dive bombs. No digging for a rubber hammer to slam decoys in the ground. Have you ever had to use a hole punch? That's not much fun at four in the morning. Nope, not with dive bombs and their stakes. They go right in. Folks, in 25 years in the waterfowl business, and not many people can claim that. If I tell you something works great, then by God it works. Go to the Dive Bomb Industries website and fill that order up with the best silhouettes on the planet. Want to save 10% on your next order from Dive Bomb? When you go to checkout, use coupon code BIGHONKER, all in lowercase words, and Dive Bomb will take 10% off your order. That's DiveBombIndustries.com or at DiveBombIndustries on Instagram.